This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I'll be your host. This is episode 226, entitled, Did God Change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? That's the question we will be exploring in this week's episode. So I want to begin by looking at the entry entitled God in the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. In this entry, in the section where it describes how the Old Testament portrays God, it says, quote, There is no doubt that the God of the Bible is what we would call personal, although this word never appears in the text of Scripture, and the concept seems to have been unknown in biblical times. But if we define a person as a rational agent capable of establishing interactive relationships with other rational agents, then God is certainly portrayed as a person in the Old Testament. Furthermore, although he sometimes speaks in the plural, and there are grounds for thinking that some of his attributes, like his word, are occasionally personified, he is a single person with no superiors equals, or rivals, end quote. So far, so good, in my opinion. This article admits that within the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is a person, is a single person. Sometimes this singular person God has personified attributes like his word, but he is a single person and he has no superiors, equals, or rivals. Sounds like God is one person. Sounds like biblical Unitarianism. But it is almost too good to be true because the article continues when it wants to move into the New Testament evidence. Let's begin the quote again. When we look at the New Testament, the issue of God's personhood takes on an entirely new dimension. The unique oneness of God is unquestioned, but the appearance of the Son and of the Holy Spirit raises questions as to how this must be understood. End quote. So in this week's episode, we're going to examine the New Testament to see if the New Testament authors reimagined the God of the Old Testament in new ways to include persons other than the Father or if the New Testament reaffirms the God of the Old Testament in which there is no change. In other words, is God reimagined or reaffirmed by New Testament authors? As I demonstrated in the article just quoted, sometimes the argument is made that the New Testament is going to be what begins to describe God as no longer being one single person, but a God that also includes the Son and the Holy Spirit in it. Is this actually true, or is this article mistaken? 
So here are some of the questions that I would like to explore in this week's episode. How do the New Testament authors speak about God in the first century in ways that offer details about the God of the Hebrew Bible? How is God with his various Old Testament titles understood by New Testament authors? And is the Shema, the Jewish creed of Israel that expresses God's oneness and singularity, reaffirmed or potentially expanded by New Testament authors? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is New Testament references to the God presented within the Hebrew Bible. Now, there are a variety of texts and passages that we can collect as data to establish this particular point. So, of course, the evidence that I trot out today is not meant to be exhaustive. It's meant to be an example of the evidence that you are sure to find on your own. So I'm going to begin with the passage at the beginning of 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, the author says, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. That's 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. So here the author offers his thanksgiving, which is typical for the beginning of letters. He identifies the object of his offering of thanks. He gives thanks to God. This God is described with a singular relative pronoun. I thank God whom. So this God is understood as a single person. And this God is the God that the author serves. And what's interesting is that the God that he serves here in New Testament times, is described as the God who was served the way my forefathers did. So what we can extrapolate from this passage is that the author thinks that the God that he is currently serving is the same God who was served by his forefathers. This author does not think that the God that is being described here in what we would call a New Testament text is any different from the God that was served by his forefathers, the God described in the Hebrew Bible. Moving along, we can look at the opening few verses of the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. So what we can see from this passage is that the God that is now speaking in these last days continues to speak, and is the same God that spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways. So God formerly spoke in the prophets. Now God is speaking in his Son. Not in the sense that God has been incarnate in the Son. You wouldn't say that when the passage says that God spoke in the prophets. God was not incarnate within Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Joel, not in any real sense of incarnation. There might be 
the indwelling of the word of the Lord or the authorization of God that sends and commissions these prophets. But the point remains that God and the Son are distinguished. The Son is described as His Son. His, of course, is a singular reference indicating that God is a single person. And what we can see here is that the God who is now speaking in these last days is the very same God that spoke long ago to the ancestors, spoke to the fathers. There's no development here of this God. Now, there are a lot of references in the book of Acts because in the book of Acts, these early evangelists are trying to describe how what is actually taking place right now with salvation and deliverance is something that the God of the Hebrew Bible has been working towards all along. So in Acts chapter 3, verse 13, it says that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. That's Acts 3.13. So here we can see that in the present time, God has glorified his servant Jesus. So we can see that God and Jesus are distinguished. We can see that Jesus is described as his servant. And the his there, of course, is a singular pronoun indicating that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a single person. And we can see that this God who has glorified Jesus in the present is the very same God as the God of our fathers. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there is no reimagining of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's just reaffirming this God. And this God, of course, is clearly differentiated from Jesus, his servant. Moving along, Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 30, says something similar. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's Acts chapter 5, verses 30 through 31. We have much of the same here. What is God doing in the present? Well, God has exalted to his right hand Jesus. Jesus is described as a prince and a savior. God is described as a singular person because of the singular verbs and the singular pronoun, his right hand. Jesus is distinguished from this God, and this God is the very same God of our fathers. As the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. So there is a reaffirmation that the God who has rescued Jesus, raised Jesus, and exalted Jesus is the very same God that our fathers honored. There's no reimagination of the God of our fathers here. They are reaffirming this very same God without any development. Moving along, Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 12. A certain man, Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well-spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. This is Paul speaking. Ananias came to me 
and standing near me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I, Paul, looked at him, and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. So this is Acts 22, verses 12 through 14. Paul is recounting, under the voice of Luke the author, the time of his call conversion, if that's what we want to call it. And it's describing how Ananias was speaking to him at this time. Ananias announced that the God of our fathers, that is the God that we honored in Old Testament times, the God of our fathers, the God of our ancestors, has in the present appointed you to know his will. So this God is ascribed with singular pronouns, his will. And this God has also appointed Paul to see the righteous one. This, of course, is Jesus, the one who is raised from the dead and the one who appeared to Paul on the Damascus road. So God here is reaffirmed, not reimagined. And Jesus, the righteous one, is distinguished from the God of our fathers. Jesus is not confused with the God of our fathers. Look in the later parts of the book of Acts. Acts 24, verse 14 says, But this I admit to you, Paul speaking, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that which is written in the prophets. This is Acts 24, verse 14. So Paul here is saying that he in the present is serving the God of our fathers. The God of our fathers is not a God that is different from the God that Paul is currently serving. He seems to be reaffirming the God of our fathers in his present religious devotion. Let's move to our next section, point number two, which is Stephen's speech as a test case for reaffirmation or reimagination. Now, the book of Acts is full of speeches. In fact, one-third of the book of Acts consists of speeches. And the longest speech in the book of Acts is Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. And in this speech, Stephen, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, describes many things that God was up to and doing within the Old Testament period, quoting many passages from the Hebrew Bible. And then Stephen is going to go on and describe what God is doing right now. And Stephen is going to have a trance-like vision where he gets to look into heaven and see both God and Jesus. So we can get a good sense here as to how Stephen, and namely how the author of the book of Acts, which is Luke, how Luke is able to portray to us how the God of the New Testament scriptures is understood in light of the portrayal of God in the Old Testament. There's going to be a lot of citing from Acts chapter 7, but I'm not going to read the entire passage, but you'll get the point as we see Stephen continue to speak 
about God. So beginning in verse 2, Stephen says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So this is the God of glory, and this is what he did in the past. In verse 6, Stephen says, But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land, and they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. So this is what God did when he spoke to Abraham. Verse 9, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with them. The same God was with Joseph. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So the same God has made promises to Abraham. Verse 20. It was at this time Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. So the very same God had a strong opinion of Moses. Verse 25. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. So this is God granting deliverance through Moses. The very same God is working through Moses. Verse 32. God speaks. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. So God here speaks, claims to be the very same God of the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this very same God introduces himself to Moses. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So here, Luke is depicting Moses as citing from Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 18, 18. God will raise up for you a prophet. Verse 42. But God turned away and delivered them up to the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. So the very same God is able to turn away from unrepentant Israel. Verse 45. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations, whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. This passage continues to reaffirm God. We can see that the God that David served was understood as the God of Jacob. And this is the God who dispossessed the nations. And God drove the nations out before our fathers. So there's this connecting of the very same God that was involved in the conquest. This God was involved with David. And this very same God was Jacob's God. Verse 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him, for God. Verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in a house made by human hands. And this, of course, is what upset 
the listeners because the phrase made by human hands is another way of talking about idols. And so by depicting the temple as something that was now being honored as an idol, this, of course, upset the crowds. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him, at Stephen. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. So what we can see from this particular passage is that Stephen is going to go point by point by point in meticulous detail to describe God in the Hebrew Bible in the way that God interacts with various persons outside of Israel. That's one of the points of the sermon, is that God is not only available where the temple is. God has worked with his people outside of the temple and made holy ground in places outside of Mount Zion. So the temple is not the only place that God can function. But in doing so, God is described with all this detail, and then... When Stephen has this vision, looking up into heaven, he's able to acknowledge the very same God. He doesn't claim to see God per se. He sees the glory of God because it's understood in the New Testament times that no one can see God and live. But we also can note that in this vision, Stephen is able to witness Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Jesus is there in heaven but he is distinguished from God. We have God and Jesus, and Jesus is standing at God's right hand. Jesus is described as the Son of Man, as the authorized and exalted human figure. So we have God and a human being in heaven. So God and Jesus are not understood as being one and the same. Jesus has not been absorbed into the one God. They are distinguished. They are differentiated. But the God that Stephen sees is the very same God that he has spent 40 plus verses describing as being active with the God of our fathers, as the God of our fathers, and by interacting with Moses and with David and with Solomon. It's very clear in the longest speech in the book of Acts that the God in New Testament times is a reaffirmation of the God depicted in the Hebrew Bible. Let's move to our third and final point, which is the Shema in the New Testament. Now, the Shema is the Jewish creed of Israel. Israel, the religion of Israel, the children of Israel, and of course Judaism, has a creed. That creed comes from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, numerically one, with the cardinal number one, Echad, not some sort of compound number. Echad is the cardinal number one, as if you were counting to ten, you would start with Echad. So Yahweh is one. It indicates Yahweh's unique position, Yahweh's oneness, and Yahweh's singularity. Now, in the New Testament times, what's interesting is that many speakers, including Jesus, 
the Apostle Paul, and even James continued to quote and acknowledge the Shema as describing how God actually is in present times. This, of course, would indicate that God still is one person. Let's look at this evidence. In Mark 12, 28, very famous passage, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked Jesus, what commandment is foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's Mark 12, 28 through 31. So Jesus reaffirms by quoting the Shema. He doesn't change it. He doesn't alter it. He doesn't include himself within this Israelite creed that describes God's oneness. Jesus points to someone else, says that person is God, and he commands us to love that God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says that there is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus, authoritatively, as the primary Christian teacher, you might say, reaffirms the Shema. We can see this in the letters of Paul, to where Paul is teaching this to his Gentile converts. He's teaching this in his Gentile churches, these churches that actually have Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. Galatians 3.20 says, Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. And by saying there that God is only one, he is alluding to the Shema, and he is noting that a mediator is not needed when you only have one party, while on the other hand, God is only one. Namely, God is only one person. So Paul there reaffirming the Shema in his letter to the Galatians. We can also see this in the letter to the Romans. Romans 3, 29 says, Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. God is one. That's Romans 3, 29 through 30, where Paul quite explicitly says that the God of the Jews is also the God of the Gentiles. This God is the God who is one. And so Paul is citing the Jewish creed, the Shema, the creed of the Jews that describes the God of the Jews. And he says this God is the God of the Gentiles also. And this God is going to justify by faith and through faith Jews and Gentiles. And this God is one. This God is one person. So not only is Paul reaffirming the most essential and foundational creed that describes God and his oneness. He is teaching it to his Gentile converts who had to give up paganism, give up the worship of many gods, and had to be converted to monotheism. And this is the type of monotheism that Paul authoritatively taught 
to his Gentile converts. There is one God, he is a single person, and this is the God of the Jews. Last passage we'll look at, James chapter 2, verse 19, which says, You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. That's James 2, 19. So this is a allusion to the Shema. You believe that God is one. You believe that God is one person because the Lord our God is one. And James affirms this particular belief. If you believe that God is one, you do well. But the demons also believe this and they shudder, indicating that you need works to go along with this good faith. So by Jesus, Paul, and James quoting the Shema authoritatively and by not modifying it, expanding it, adding the Son or the Holy Spirit to it, we can see that they understood and they taught to what we would understand as New Testament readers the fact that God is one in the same way that God is one within the Hebrew Bible and God has not been reimagined. God has been reaffirmed. The God of the New Testament is the very same God as the God of the Old Testament. That God is the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of course, that God is the God of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we begin to explore the different ways that Jesus is portrayed as the Son of God in the New Testament. It seems that the New Testament describes Jesus as Son of God by birth, Son of God by baptism, and Son of God by resurrection. But these all don't mean the same thing. So we'll begin looking and parsing out that particular data in order to make better sense of how the New Testament describes Jesus as the one true God's Son. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing on iTunes and YouTube, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, there is a link to PayPal associated with this particular episode. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith. Until next time, please take care.